Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Thrun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Let's be... Bandana, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great too. Let's um, let's see what's happening in the uh, area of climate today. It's uh, yeah. an ever-evolving scene. That's certainly true. I think weather and climate are no longer subjects for polite discussion. That's a great start, uh, <laughs> actually, to this discussion. I want to bring us a little bit back to who you are. Um, you grew up in uh, India, in New mm -hmm. Delhi. Um, one of three sisters, I'm told. Well, uh, a brother and a sister and me. Oh, okay. So I got that wrong. But uh, there was something in your background where you said that your sister in particular uh, was asking you stories. Yeah, yeah. I became a storyteller because she's eight years younger than I am. And she demanded stories, new stories, every day since she was really small. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> well, so that's the start. Um, more recently, you know, you became a physicist, particle physics, and mm -hmm. a PhD in theoretical physics from Louisiana State. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is at some point in your career, you took a break, and I want you to tell me more about that, because you then started picking up the writing, and you're a, a published sci-fi author, mm -hmm. uh, and you currently... Uh, double uh, both as a teacher lecturer at Framingham State University in Massachusetts, but you have this Climate Imagination Fellowship at the University of Arizona. Now, so I guess my question is, how do you combine physics and uh, literature in this way? And how did that happen? 
you attribute it all to your sister? Uh, well, actually, I owe a number of people for the way I was raised in a way to be sensitive to the world, to the entire spectrum of human knowledge and experience. Um, so I always loved the sciences, but, you know, in my family of aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, siblings, cousins, um, you know, there was... Um, uh, there's so many different disciplines were represented, you know, uh, disproportionately economics, interestingly enough. But also, uh, you know, there were discussions about religion, about politics. My grandmother had taken part in the independence struggle against British rule. And uh, and there were also, you know, discussions about uh, society and uh, about knowledge, seeking knowledge being a noble thing to do. And about uh, inner worth being not to do with your material possessions, but with who you are and what you could give to the world. So it was a very rich environment for me. And I kind of, you know, the way kids do, um, absorbed everything. Um, you know, I was told stories by my mother and my paternal grandmother and heard stories all the time around me, real life ones and fantastical ones and whatnot. So, and at the same time, it seemed to me that nature has stories to tell. And so, you know, both my brother and I got really interested in the sciences. So that's kind well, of how it all got mixed up, I guess, in my head. Well, you told me, and this was a wonderful phrase, uh, you said you had a Renaissance upbringing. Mm -hmm. So it was a mix of stories and science and literature and uh, a little bit of everything. You were stimulated to do so many things. Yes, indeed, I was. Is that kind of how you model your teaching now? Because we'll get into this, because it's not just imagination uh, that you have centered on here, but it is a whole sort of new way of thinking about uh, teaching climate and the importance of teaching climate you know, in a physics context, but, you know, far beyond. So I'm just curious, um, you know, about that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, it's, I think that, uh, I, that I took a 10 year gap from academia and it was kind of forced upon me for, uh, because of circumstances, but nevertheless, it was a very important period for me to reflect on the world. I think when you're inside a field or inside a particular career or whatever, there's a kind of bubble that grows around you and that bubble becomes your reality, right? So being forced outside that bubble helped me to think about physics itself, but also the world at large uh, got me into writing fiction, got me into thinking about um, the environment, which was something I'd always been interested in. And um, and then, you know, years later, I found myself, uh, you know, in a teaching university, a wonderful, lively public university um, where I could apply all those all that thinking, all that reflection to this very new and very terrifying, new to me at that time, terrifying problem of climate change. And I realized that um, I had an ethical duty to my students because they weren't learning uh, anything about climate change or climate science or, you know, other than uh, information, which was often misinformation in the public sphere. Uh, and 
they were the ones who were going to be impacted disproportionately more than people of my generation. So I felt a, a, a kind of ethical imperative to first teach myself some basic climate science, and then secondly, to teach it in my physics classes, all my general physics classes at any rate. And so that's how I set out on this journey. And, um, and my first attempts were actually pretty sad failures, but I learned from them. <laughs> so, yeah. But before we get to how you now teach it, I was just curious, how is climate change taught these days? If you think about what you were, I guess, expected to do or what you immediately were faced with. So you're, you're teaching physics at a teaching university. What does that consist of and where does climate change typically come in in that process? Yeah, well, you know, physics um, is taught, the standard way of teaching physics is that you give a lecture and students receive the knowledge, you give them practice in the material so that they become, you know, good at the basics um, that informs the field. Um, and as to how it all uh, how is generally taught? Well, well, in general, climate change is still taught as mostly a scientific technical subject. So you'll see it in core in earth science courses mostly. So students have to typically choose an earth science or environment course to learn about climate science. Um, and if they happen not to choose it, then they don't learn about it. And uh, it has also been. Um, taught in geography courses, um, in, uh, you know, some social science courses as well. But again, um, they need not necessarily cross the bridge to the science of it. Uh, they may do it in their own contexts. So the uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that teaching climate change is still very science and technology focused, but also very compartmentalized by discipline. And there's no holistic understanding of it. Um, there's a very important report, I think, from the Brookings Institute by Christina Kwok in 2020 uh, that essentially looked at the education sector at the macro level and said that while you would think that education ought to be an important ally of climate mitigation, it is actually failing us. So the education, the mainstream education sector is failing us and uh, laid out uh, some key roadblocks to uh, quality climate education. And one of them, which I took to heart, is the lack of radical visions for climate education. Hmm. So, yeah, so I think, uh, I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, but you have started that work and you, you mentioned transdisciplinarity or the, the need to go beyond disciplines. Tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, notion of meta concepts and how you use them to arouse, I guess, this kind of imagination in your students. Well, um, transdisciplinary is the word that describes my approach. And uh, it's kind of, it was kind of like a homecoming for me, given my Renaissance upbringing, to realize that I could not simply teach the science, the basic science, because uh, my students got depressed, they got anxious, they got, uh, they got kind of frozen into a kind of despair that prevented them from even wanting to take any kind of action. So I had to go back to the drawing board. And um, what I realized when I realized that I had to learn from the climate, to think about the climate problem as the teacher, uh, a journey that took me to the North Slope of Alaska 
and to uh, villages in India, for example, um, what I learned was that it is an inherently transdisciplinary problem that, um, you know, if you focus on, and this is how I now start when I teach climate, that if you tell a story, if you uh, tell either a real life or a fictionalized account of uh, what climate change looks like on the ground experientially, and especially from the perspectives of the most marginalized peoples, then it not only comes alive, it becomes less abstract, it becomes more viscerally real, but it also uh, becomes evident what all the threads of disciplines are that are necessary for a good understanding of the problem. So it's not just physics, chemistry, biology, earth science, environmental science. It's also sociology. It's also history. It's also culture. It's also the local environment um, in all its biophysical and social complexity. So, um, so as I was, as I was exploring these ideas, um, and, you know, since my course was not devoted to climate change, but I was trying to see where I could integrate climate change with physics, um, I had to ask myself this very important question that what is it that everyone needs to know about climate change so that they can be well-informed and also inspired and hopefully also inoculated against misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. So I struggled and wrestled with that question quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm on this ongoing journey of learning uh, more climate science as well, because it's a rapidly developing field. Um, so what, where I am right now in that journey is that I've come up with a pedagogical framework where I answer that question by exploring three large concepts that I call meta-concepts that provide a scaffolding uh, to deal with not just common misconceptions, but also to kind of ground our understanding in a transdisciplinary way. So, so if you want me to explain them, I can, I yeah, can do I just so. Wanna, I just want to make the observation that it's like, it seems like it's a mixture here for you of experiential learning or experiential grounding in at mm -hmm. least someone else's experience perhaps not even yours which uh, mm -hmm. you know which is important i guess in experiential learning or always because if it's just learning about your own experience that that you know that's <laughs> a lot of education doesn't even start there but with climate learning you're saying for example you know examples from the global south and mm -hmm. realizing that climate is affecting people much more directly perhaps than than it is to to your students who are sitting in in Framingham but then mm -hmm. this conceptual uh, clarity uh yeah please uh, t tell us about these these meta concepts and and more importantly than just the concepts is how do you teach it because it would seem that concepts are just concepts so I, i'm curious so these there's, there's three of them how do you even int introduce them well, can I tell you a little story? This is sure. one of the stories I use in the classroom. Um, so this particular one is from Alaska, from the north slope of Alaska, um, where the Inupiat have been living for several thousand years. And I visited Utkiagvik, which is the northernest place you can go to in the United States uh, before falling into the Arctic Ocean. And um, 
And it was through interviews there that I conceptualized this story. So it's actually a dramatized account based on real life incidents. And it essentially goes like this, that once upon a time, 30 years ago or so, there was a scientist who studied sea ice. Now, sea ice, as, as we, we know, is the frozen surface of seawater. And this scientist went to Utkiagrik with a team to study the sea ice. And uh, as he and his team were walking across the sea ice from the shore, uh, you know, in the fall and winter, the sea ice is pretty thick, so you can actually walk across it. Uh, they were walking across to the ocean, liquid ocean boundary. And as they approached that boundary, intending to set up camp and study the sea ice, the native elder who was their guide said to them, you have to get off the ice right now, turn around right now. And they did not uh, understand why he was saying that because it was a perfect day. The sky was blue, no uh, warnings from the meteorological stations, nothing like that. But there was something about the urgency in his tone that compelled them to obey. So as they reached the shore, there was this deafening crack and a large portion of the sea ice exactly where they'd been intending to camp broke off and floated off into the Arctic Ocean. The scientists had always thought that there was one way to know the sea ice, and yet the ice had spoken not to him, but to the elder. And so that's the story I tell in the class. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, you know, you have rehearsed this a little with me, so I already know that there's three concepts. I'm curious, uh, those three concepts, the interesting thing for me about them uh, apart from which that uh, they are much broader than this obsession right now about carbon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want you to maybe just briefly explain these three concepts and, and also to, to most people who are, you know, I, I guess getting on to the, uh, to this idea that carbon is a, is a big issue. It is very interesting to me that you don't start there. You start with a much larger set of systemic forces that are not to reveal much, but they are in some, some sort of imbalance. And, and, and that's what I want you to, to explain, uh, you know, briefly. Yeah, well, I'll try to be brief. Um, if we start with what the story, the kinds of questions that arise from this story I just told you, it leads naturally to an exploration of sea ice uh, and what's happening to it. So normally the, you know, before 1980s or so is when the satellite observations were made and we found that sea ice was shrinking and is continuing to shrink rapidly in area and mass. And that's because of a, an imbalance, because the, the processes that add sea ice to the Arctic are now much slower than the processes that remove sea ice from the Arctic and which has to do with increased global heating. Um, and that imbalance, uh, you know, which is exa exacerbating the loss of sea ice is connected to global imbalances. So, for instance, the carbon cycle imbalance, the, because carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is rising. And that's mm. because processes that add CO2 to the atmosphere are acting faster than processes that remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So there's a dynamic imbalance in the system that manifests both on a planetary scale and on a local scale, for example, in the context of the Arctic. So, uh, and, and that causes an energy imbalance, and that's why the Earth is heating up. So understanding the uh, balance in this sense uh, and imbalance, its opposite, um, 
is crucial to understanding what's happening to our climatic systems and our biophysical systems. Um, so, you know, we can also understand it in the sense of, you know, if I, in a very simple way, if I stand on the toes of one foot uh, and try to balance myself, you know, I sway up and down, I but I can recover my balance more or less. Uh, and But if I lose my balance, then, you know, I'm on my way to falling towards the floor, towards a new state of balance. And on my way there, I'm in a state of imbalance or change. Um, so how is that relatable to the climate context? Well, um, uh, if I think about it this way, that um, the systems that are in balance, if they can go into imbalance, then you must cross a limit or a threshold. And as we do that, because, you know, as, as I'm swinging back and forth, the fourth standing on the toes of one foot, um, you know, I can recover my balance more or less. But if if somebody tugs at my arm just a little bit, then I'm committed to change in one direction and then I can't recover my balance. And that's what's happened to the carbon cycle. That's what's happened to the energy balance and so on and so forth. Hmm. And so these, this idea of critical thresholds is really important. And at the global scale, they manifest as what are now called planetary boundaries. And there are nine of them that have been identified, of which we have crossed five and climate change as well one of them. And this planetary boundaries framework is a work in progress, but it's very, very interesting. And one of the things it does is to point out exactly what you just said, that the problem is not just carbon. So if we look at the five transgressed boundaries, it's climate change, of course. So that's the carbon cycle being messed up. There's also the nitrogen and phosphorus cycles that are way out of whack. There's biosphere integrity. We're destroying ecosystems at an unprecedented rate. We are in the Earth's sixth mass extinction. And, um, you know, there's the land system uh, use. And now we have plastic pollution. So there's all of these limits um, and what this illustrates is this gets us to the root of all of these crises or what, you know, scholars have called a polycrisis, that if you're going to find solutions to build viable futures, viable ecological and just futures, then you can't just look at carbon, uh, you know, reducing carbon. We absolutely have to do that, but we must also simultaneously do all of the other things to bring us back within planetary boundaries. And that means looking critically at the root causes of all of these problems. And ultimately we are looking at an unequal distribution of power, a system that is inherently unjust. And that is what a socioeconomic globalized system, that is what we are up against. That's fascinating because the, the third concept of yours, you call it complexity, but it's very interesting to think about complexity in a bigger uh, picture, I guess, because complexity could very easily become something that you think, well, there are system scientists that Think about this and it's very, very complicated. You thought science was complicated. Complexity <laughs> science is like science, you know, to a higher order of magnitude. Now everything matters. And, you know, what, what are all these things? It must be almost impenetrable, I would say, to a young student to think about complexity. Uh, but now you are grounding this complexity now in, and, and this is what fascinates me quite a bit, um, so all of these three concepts, the, the balance, imbalance, the planetary boundaries, and then this complexity, you are grounding, I guess, the three of these concepts in this um, justice-centered pedagogy, you, you call it, basically. Mm -hmm. so, so how does that help us? Um, how does that help your students to, to you know, in, in concrete terms? What does it do for them 
so you're presenting him with these three concepts. You, you, you've given us some vivid examples, but I'm just curious now. Um, it still is, of course, complicated. It's complex. Mm-hmm. It's it must be very easy. I mean, I feel at times that I'm studying this all the time, but it is overwhelmingly complex. And even if I thought that I understood the system, I feel the politics and the uphill battle we're facing is just devastating. So how 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 do you actually teach? You know <laughs> what to do about that, and, and and how does it relate to kind of? I guess at first sight, I would think bringing in the global south just makes me even more depressed. So I'm curious yeah. how this for you is the solution. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to uh, start addressing that um, in two ways. One is that, um, you know, the the idea of complexity, of complex interconnections. So, you know, when I teach the Arctic, the story about the Arctic, one of the students, uh, one of the questions that inevitably comes up from students is like, well, the Arctic is, all of this is interesting, but why are we studying such a remote place, right? When we're talking about climate change, why don't we talk about climate change in Massachusetts, which we do later on. But um, so, um, so we actually get to explore that through understanding complex interconnections in systems, for, through understanding systems, but not necessarily in that more kind of formal remote way where you are separate from the system because we are not separate from our systems. Hmm. And uh, I think it's very important to contextualize our own place in the system uh, because we want to also be actors in the system and hopefully actors for a better future. So, um, so understanding the role of the Arctic, for example, in global climate is really, really important to uh, emphasize the fact that there is no place on Earth that is climatically isolated from the rest of the planet. What happens in the Arctic, and the Arctic is a particularly uh, major driver of climatic changes, but it's true everywhere. So, you know, what what climate scientists call teleconnections between remote parts of the or or not so remote parts of the globe. Um, So that's one thing. The other thing to think about is the fact that in modern industrialized, globalized cultures, many people are increasingly feeling alone. And so when we think about a huge, big, looming problem like climate change, the natural psychological reaction is to feel despair and to feel overwhelmed. And indeed, it's not a problem that can be solved by individuals, however well-meaning, unless, you know, they become part of systemic change. So, um, but also among the young, and this is absolutely heartbreaking for me as an educator, we know that rates of anxiety and loneliness and isolation are rising. So in a way, you know, when I first started teaching this stuff and failed at it because I was only teaching the science and I was depressing the hell out of my students, um, you know, I felt like I was giving them a double burden that they already had so much to be, you know, to struggle against in life. Um, so, so, you know, I felt like I had, that was another motivator that I really had to find my own way in out of this mess in order to to be able to help them wisely. So that's why, you know, the, there are four dimensions to this pedagogy, the scientific, technological, the transdisciplinary, uh, the epistemological, but also the psychosocial action dimension. And I learned um, 
I learned a lot from my students, actually. So, you know, I'll tell you one uh, one time when I was teaching about this third meta concept, and this was again years ago before I'd fully developed the pedagogy, um, that, you know, my students were complaining about being depressed about learning all this stuff. And there was one student who, uh, who was always chipper, always bright eyed, and she continued to be bright eyed throughout this. And she had, a, she, she chose to present, you know, we were doing classroom presentations. She chose to present about complexity. So I asked her, how come you're not depressed like everyone else, like the rest of us? And she said, you know how you taught about, you know, uh, you know, all these biophysical climatic, uh, complex systems. And you also mentioned that society is a complex system, that social networks are complex systems and all. So I said, yes. And she said, well, if there can be, uh, you know, small changes that can ripple through a, a complex system and cause systemic change, that means that that can happen in societies too, right? So I said, yeah, well, I guess so. And she said, well, that's what gives me hope. You know, that's why I'm not depressed. And I, I really uh, thought that was a wonderful teaching from a student, you know, uh, to me. So I've, I've um, and that led me to exploring where is it that people who are on the margins um, actually have the courage to not only keep going, but often to, to, take the kinds of action and show the kinds of creativity and courage um, and hope that, you know, more privileged people like you and me perhaps don't always have. And so if there's time, I can tell you another little story um, about, sure. about that. So, so I'm going to, this story is about, uh, this is a true story from uh, a woman in India. Her name is Parvati. She is, she lives in a, impoverished village um, in a region of India called Jharkhand, which is one of the most uh, climate vulnerable regions in the country. And I know this story because I got to speak to her on the phone in 2019 when a friend of mine was visiting the area and got her access to a phone. And um, what she told me was that about 25 years ago, uh, that region used to be covered with thick forests, you know, populated with bears and tigers and all of that, relatively cool climate. And there were all these village communities that were living close to the forests or in the forests and actually thriving quite well with uh, some agriculture and then the forest itself giving off its produce um, for, for their well-being. And then massive deforestation started to happen for mining, for quarrying, for road building and all of that. And many of the local forests vanished. So Parvati and other village women about 22 years ago or so decided they would do something about it. And they started to protect their last remaining forest of 200 hectares. Um, often engaging in the dangerous task of, of uh, you know, driving off would-be loggers, patrolling the forest every morning, digging ponds for the animals, as, as she told me, and also making mud and stone check dams to keep the streams inside the forest because the outside landscape was so desertified. And uh, back in 2019, when I spoke to her, she told me that the groundwater had gone up. So the agriculture, which had started failing after the deforestation was actually recovering enough that they could, they could actually get some yield from their, uh, crop, from their crops. And not just that, but malaria had gone down. The animals were coming back other than the tiger. And, um, and they could manage again. They could they could live again. They had water security and therefore food security. And she was very proud of the work that they had done. And she said, "We still do it." And she said, "Come and see what we what we do. You know, come visit with us." 
So, um, and there was so much ebullience and so much, um, so much uh, determination and positivity in her voice that I was really impressed that people, uh, you know, who had their backs against the wall in a sense, and this was a matter of survival for them. And this is what she had done, uh, she and the other women. And so whenever I feel, um, you know, so this is one of the stories, this is one of my teaching stories. And um, we discuss this in the classroom. And whenever I personally feel like I'm losing courage or hope or whatever, then I remember this and I tell myself that I have to buck up and, <laughs> and uh, work through those difficult emotions because you can't, you can't throw them aside. You can't pretend they're not there. You have to work through them until you get to the point where you can do the work. So. So it seems to me that in, in your approach and in, I guess, in many approaches that are looking at scenarios, there is this mix of uh, positive and negative thinking about the future. Uh, you you kind of need, need it both because e even some of the negative stuff can at least give you some clarity, uh, mm -hmm. but then these positive nuggets. And it seems that for in, in your experience, these nuggets have to be real examples for people to believe them, especially if they are from far away. And that's very powerful. I wanted to maybe take our discussion towards sort of a future outlook. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, where where do you see our world going? Um, you, you said, you know, you, you, you're passionately teaching climate change, but this is currently ongoing quite rapidly. What, what mm -hmm. kind of timeline do we have before we need to act in, in, in your view? Well, I think the time to act is yesterday, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, I think, I think that we need changes on multiple timescales. We need immediate changes to ward off, um, things that are going to be hard to reverse. Uh, we need long-term changes, uh, including adaptive changes to things that are going to continue to happen, uh, you know, like sea level rise, um, even if we stopped emissions tomorrow. Um, and then we need to look at the long view in the future as well, because, um, because you know, if we're only thinking till 2100, that's insufficient, right? I mean, the future doesn't suddenly uh, end at that point. So, uh, so it's really all of these things that we need to think about. And, and that's also why I think climate change forces us to recognize that, you know, to echo Mar Margaret Atwood, that it's not just climate change, it's everything change. And so it's, it's public, it's political, but it's also personal. It's, it's um, you know, across disciplines, it's across geographies, it's across national boundaries. It's also across paradigms, it's across worldviews. So, um, so, you know, I think that, uh, I think that if we if we only focus on uh, either the immediate future or the far future or you know just 2100 we are actually missing out um because I think what we need to do is to first is to recognize that we live in rotten systems we live in unequal systems and in fact we've been driven to this point because of a power hierarchy because we have 10% of the economically the top economically well off people you know for instance uh causing 50% of the individual based 
uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So we, and uh, not just that, but they build systems that ensure that wealth and power flow to the top of a pyramidal system. So if that is the root cause of our poly crisis, then it is essential to build justice into everything that we think about and do. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I'm particularly inspired by the indigenous uh, writer, Kyle White, who's also a professor at, uh, I believe, the University of Michigan. And um, uh, he has written a beautiful essay called Time as Kinship, which is a way of thinking about time, not only as linear time, you know, which is the default for us scientists particularly, but in general for many of us in modern societies. Um, and, you know, we have to we have to know about the past of the climate, the present of the climate and the various future scenarios of the climate. That's very important to know what's coming up, to contextualize with the past, all of that. Um, but that's not the only way to think about time. Um, and the, what he points out in this beautiful essay, Time as Kinship, is uh, to quote, and again, he uses stories, um, Native American uh, peoples telling the story of climate, not just through this linear narrative, but through a story about relationships, about, about changing and broken relationships. So if you recognize that this is a problem to do with relationships, unequal relationships, unequal power balances, but also uh, broken relationships between human and human, between human and the non-human, between humans and the rest of the universe, all of that. If we recognize that, that completely decenters you from the old paradigm, at least in my view. And, and so uh, it's no less an urgent task to look at climate change in this way. Uh, because there are ways of thinking about, and this this behooves us to think collectively, to get in groups and think collectively, and to brainstorm collectively and say, okay, we we need to make change, but that change, but we must also be willing to be changed by those changes. So you know uh, what what we think of as who we are, our identities, our personal space, all of that will change as well. You know, it's not one thing or the other; it's all of it, and so it's a much richer and more generous view of time that I think in a sense, um, you know, um, frees us from, from being committed only to the linear time narrative and to think more richly and to get together and figure out, you know, across our differences to really listen to each other and say, well, okay, what do we need to do to make change here in this town? Uh, that is also at the same time thinking globally, like, okay, if you're going to completely change how we do things in this town, in this family, in this neighborhood, and then maybe connect to other towns and across the world and ask them how they're making changes and kind of viralize the whole thing, you know? So, uh, I haven't yet had the chance, but I want to brainstorm like that someday, you know? So, uh, I, and someday soon, uh, because we can't wait either. So I, I don't know if that answers your question though. <laughs> it gives me a new question. Uh, and it, and it actually blocks my second question because I was going to ask you to talk more about science fiction because that's, that was sort of, I guess my framing for you was a mix of, uh, you know, an, an educator and someone who writes sci-fi. But I realize now that your storytelling framing here is much broader than just thinking about the future, precisely for what you just said. So mm -hmm. the point here is actually more empathy and storytelling across time boundaries than it is just imagining 
a positive or a negative future. And I think that's at least for me at this point with all uh, you know some work that I'm doing, it's a, a great reminder because you know there are a lot of lessons in history that probably have been hidden in the sense that, I mean, even a, gr- a lot of great literature was perhaps taken for granted that the environment around them was stable. So they focused on the people. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I, I actually want to ask a different question than sci-fi. I want to ask if, when you think back on the great literary works that you have read in, in the past, if those people had realized how much the natural world was going to change, do you think that we would see more nature in the great works of literature of the past? Um, well, as far as Anglophone literature is concerned, I think that's true. I think the person who's best qualified to talk about it is the writer Amitav Ghosh, whose uh, book, The Nutmeg's Curse, is really, really worth reading. Uh, But also before that, his book of essays, The Great Derangement, talks about that and talks about how the form of the novel in its current form uh, actually mimics a a kind of, uh, uh, I would say, a a theory in a way of, of geology, which is uniformitarianism, where you assume a certain continuity in the natural world so that you can just focus on the human, uh, but you're also making a deliberate disconnection with the rest of the natural world through ideas like human dominance over nature and so on and so forth. So he talks about that and he talks about uh, how colonialism spreads these ideas and so on. I do think that that's the case. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I read and write speculative fiction because mainstream mimetic uh, Anglophone fiction particularly basically assumes that there's nothing but humans on this planet, that, you know, rocks and 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 uh, weather systems and bears and whales and so on don't exist, uh, except as possibly a backdrop. And even then it's rare. So, you know, uh, I mean, I know I'm I'm uh, making a caricature here, but, you know, novels about, about, uh, you know, Couples having, uh, you know, in, in intra and intermarital affairs in in uh, New York City or something like that, you know, with the exclusion of everything else that matters, you know, it just seemed bizarre to me from the get go. Ever since I was a child, you know, growing up in Delhi, where I was surrounded by animals, you know, even though it's a city, nevertheless, there's like you know, street dogs and wild birds and and you know, so on and so forth. It seemed very strange to me. I felt like there was something very important that was being left out. So I think what you're saying is true. And one of the great things about speculative fiction, not all speculative fiction, but uh, a fair quantity of it is to recognize that we live with non-humans, not just non-human living things, but the physical universe as well. And that the physical universe has things to say to us. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a huge hole in our consciousness in modernity. Yeah, I uh, I like that the physical environment has things to say to us, and so so I guess it's about opening uh, up and, and and listening to to all these stories that that need to be told, and uh, and perhaps writing some stories and and imagining some things and. Uh, and perhaps even representing, right? It's about representation. You, you, well, that's what you're talking about, finding different ways to represent nature and that 
I mean, for now, at least until we figure out how whale, how even whales and dogs and, and, and animals, uh, you know, communicate and can translate it into, I guess, uh, you know, voice of, mm -hmm. of human kind. We have to represent these physical uh, and, and natural and, and, you know, we have to represent nature ourselves mm -hmm. because it doesn't speak up in a way that is, you know, I guess universally understandable or feels irrelevant to everybody so we need to translate in between i guess that's that's what i'm reflecting on when when you say these um you know, when you make these points here yeah yeah i mean i think it's a it's a question of listening to the stories that nature is telling us and to me in a way science is one way of eavesdropping on conversations that nature is happening uh, is having all the time um but it's broader than science of course And uh, so part of it is listening and the other part is, is representing. And uh, people who are experts at listening are, you know, for example, indigenous people or forest proximate communities who live with other uh, beings on a daily basis and live with landscapes on a daily basis. And we are kind of artificially insulated from landscapes, you know, with our climate controlled homes and cars and all of that. So we've, we've kind of lost the, that notion that our bodies are environmental sensors. They've, they've evolved to be conversing with the rest of nature. And we've, we've kind of lost that, that sixth sense or whatever you might call it, at least those of us who, you know, are urbanites in, in modernity. So... Well, I, I guess that's what I wanted to leave you with as a as a question, perhaps, is uh, there are all these visions about urbanity becoming more ecologically aware and, uh, you know, constructing modern cities and urban habitations that are, re, you know, using nature and, and connecting with nature in new ways. Many of these projects, however, you know, they are so expensive to realize, right? They would require complete reconstructions. And if they are new cities, uh, you know, they they inadvertently take on a lot of concrete and, and steel before they get to the nature part. How optimistic are you that we can uh, gradually perhaps uh, retrace our steps back to, I mean, I'm not saying that the 1850s pastoral uh, Western idea of what nature was, that's not the ideal you're looking for. But how can we walk ourselves back into something that's a bit more meaningful? Um, I think recognizing the importance of our local landscapes, um, wherever we might be, you know, it's going to be different everywhere. Um, and we need that difference, right? Uh, because nature is uh, manifest differently in different places. And then working with what we have there. Uh, I think is really, really important and interesting. And in fact, uh, we do an exercise with my students. This is the power of speculative futurism, where uh, we talk about, you know, after we've learned all this stuff, like, okay, we, we want to free our imaginations from the dominant paradigm. So let's imagine a future where you'd want to live, you know, which is just and equitable and, and all of that. And, and students come up with the most marvelous things, you know, and it takes a little nudging because we are so grounded in the everyday reality. You know, I call this the reality trap that we assume that current reality is all that's going to inform future realities. But they come up with marvelous imaginative notions. Uh, and uh, I've written about future cities, too, uh, in my speculative fiction. 
And I think that since so much of humanity now lives in cities, that's actually a great place to start. Um, and uh, there are very, very different ways of looking at it. Like, for instance, in many modern cities, the idea of the lawn, you know, the, the lawn as, as the staple thing, you know, which is manicured with lots of pesticides and herbicides and all that. But let's throw that out the window. Let's see if we can have a different conception that makes more sense. And uh, gathering spaces for communities and, you know, the town where I live, the river that runs through it, a small river, is almost completely out of sight. And yet rivers have been so important for human well-being and civilization. So like open up the river spaces and, uh, you know, uh, so it's not just about, of course, we have to do all that it takes to make uh, buildings energy efficient and so on. But it's also about reducing our energy use and refusing to consume the way we do. So the, the alternatives actually are really good for the human spirit, I think. And the speculative imagination can really help us free uh, uh, ourselves from the, the grasp, the hold of the, of the dominant paradigm, so to speak. Well, I want to end there. I think that the changes that you're suggesting we embark on are good for the human spirit. I, I want to end there because I think that this notion of degrowth uh, is quite damaging to uh, motivation for many people. And I like much better this idea that there is a sense of growth even in reacting to all these things. So I, I thank you for that. Uh, what I would actually also call an, an optimism, because if, if something that we do here can be good and great for the human spirit, then at least not all is lost on the path of of, of perhaps uh, you know navigating ourselves away from from these uh, you know overstepping all these uh, boundaries. So thank you very much for your reflections, and I hope to uh, to be reading your stuff. I think you're coming out with a story in the spring. Is that right? With uh, Imagination yeah. Fellowship. Yeah, the the Climate Imagination Fellowship from Arizona State University. Um, that's going to. Uh, there's actually a book coming out called the. Uh, I think the tentative title is the Climate Almanac. I'm not sure if it's going to change or not, but it features stories from four of us uh, climate imagination fellows from around the world. And um, yeah, and to your point, I think that we need to think about post growth and belonging and well being. And that's, that's where I hope we are going to be heading. Sounds very good to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondar Nevenheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products and services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondbundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.